You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and on today's episode I interview a lovely young couple I met in Australia named Matt and Jesse Wolf. And I met them at a horse expo at um, in Melbourne called Equitana. I went there right after the Journey on Podcast Summit. My son Tyler and I went there. And they have an amazing story to where, you know, like Matt started as this rough, tough, outback bloke sort of thing. And Jesse was a self-confessed hippie chick from the city. And they end up getting together through mixed martial arts, funnily enough. And then from there, they've gone on a journey of... I guess, personal development and self-discovery that has included horses and it's ended up where they're both getting their psychotherapy degree so that they can do equine-assisted therapy and that's where their passion really lies right now. So the story of these two from where they've come from, you know, Matt coming from this tough, rough, tough, outback bloke who now is getting a, a psychotherapy degree. It's a, it's a pretty cool story. Um, lovely couple, and uh, I can't wait for you to hear their story, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Matt and Jay-Z Wolf, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. How's it going, Mark? Hi. You know, what I want to do is start out this podcast. Let's talk about what you guys are doing right now, and then I want to I want to. I want to get the backstory of how we met out because that's a funny story. And then I want to get the backstory in you guys because uh, when I met you guys, it's like, well, this, that's a really, really cool story about how you got to the point you're at now. So you guys are situated in southeast Queensland, just outside of Brisbane. Is that correct? It is, yeah. So we are just about 45 minutes west of Brisbane and we are on a little bit of dirt that we call Wolfpack Ranch. And yeah, we do all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff here. And so the weird and wonderful stuff you are doing is you're starting to get into like equine assisted therapy. Is that correct? Yeah. So at the moment, we're both studying psychotherapy full time. And then we're going to add the equine assisted therapy and equine assisted learning component to the, the course we're doing now, basically to try and help people instead of instead of being in an office, you know, talking to a counselor and, you know, being closed off from nature we want to try and get people outside you know reconnect with the earth reconnect with animals reconnect with themselves and help help them by using horses and other animals that we have on the farm you know to to start the healing journey for people so that's that's our i suppose our main goal and the doors for that will be open at the end of next year um, but we also do... Yeah, so we do, we have a farm stay here. Um, so we get a lot of individuals and families from all around, even quite a way up the coast, uh, coming to sort of spend some time. Um, they hang out with the animals and do all sorts of bits and pieces. We, a lot of people, um, the little cabin sort of has two doors that flick open to sort of um, a couple of horse paddocks. And, you know, it's 
when we had the space originally, I was like, oh, they're just doors. No one will ever use them. So I didn't bother even making them highly functional. And it blows my mind how often people just open them and sit on the stairs there and just sit in the sun and just kind of watch the goings on around the farm. Uh, it makes you realise how much we take for granted the space that we have here and the day in, day out, things that seem very normal for people that come and stay. For them, it's like this meditative process of just sitting in the sun and just watching farm life take place. Um, and then when they leave the doors open, the sheep and the Go in and hop into bed with them, yeah. Climb in and walk through the cabin. So. not great. <laughs> Odin, uh, our, like, house pig, what does he weigh? 80. He'd be, yeah, like a chunky 80-kilo pig and he's not got, like, he doesn't know is not in his vocabulary. So if you try and advise him, he has to get out of the bedroom. It's like moving an 80-kilo dead weight out. Um, but, yeah, so that's always hilarious for people. Yeah. We do NDIS work, which is um, a program we have in Australia here that uh, supports people with different kinds of disabilities, access community things. So we take um, quite a few young people who um, are neurodivergent and kind of their families are struggling a little bit with their intensity every single day. Um, so they come and they spend a bit of time here on the farm with us and gives their family a chance to kind of recalibrate and gives them a chance to come and spend time with nature and do stuff that they wouldn't normally do and it, it's amazing watching them transform with that. yeah the, over the, a couple of days here with us they yeah. come on the first day and the child that leaves on day three or day four is very very different um which is really cool to see yeah. and a lot of fun um yeah and then you know we've got some event stuff that we're working on around getting different farms in our community together to do sort of touring healing modalities where people will have the opportunity to access different um you know whether it be sound healing or acupuncture or kinesiology things that are typically delivered in a room with four walls but are rooted in nature and energy and an opportunity to go out and be in nature while experiencing those things so yeah we've got little weird stuff like that that we're working on I don't think that's so weird. So you're both um, getting a degree in what did you say it was? Counseling and psychotherapy, yeah. yeah. Counseling and psychotherapy. But you're already doing the NDIS stuff, which means yes. what you some, must have something else going on there, do you? I mean, we obviously both have different um, professional backgrounds. So, you know, we have our own businesses and stuff that we run and then I'm registered for NDIS support, as is Matt. So, yeah, to be able to do that, ironically, actually requires very little qualification. But, yeah, um, blue, blue cards and all those bit safety and checks and measures. But that was just a program we kind of built because we saw a need for it and now people access it and love it, which is cool. That's cool. So right now what I might do is uh, talk about how we met. We met at a horse expo in Australia. But then I want to talk to, talk about you guys, your journeys from how you've how you've got to this point because I think it's one of the more fascinating stories I've heard and I've heard some pretty fascinating stories so if you listeners at home recently I was at a horse expo in Australia and what I have noticed in the you know quite a few years now let's say before the podcast I'd be at a horse expo in the booth and someone would come you know usually a, a, a lady um, would come up to the booth 99% of the time it would be a lady and she'd come to the booth and she'd have a look on her face that's kind of fangirlish but it's not fangirlish as in adoration it's almost like admiration it's kind of like i can tell because uh, after they told me enough of these stories i can tell there's something something i have done somewhere that has changed their 
life in quite a positive way. And so there's this look that people get when I know when they come up to the booth, I know they're going to spit out, oh, I just want to thank you so much because you changed my life because you helped me with my horse and that made me look at things differently. You know, so there's a, there's a look about it. So, but I never have men do that. So I'm at, you know, I'm an equitana in Australia and um, I'm in the booth. There's people walking by and this couple walks by and the lad, this is Matt and Jesse, and Matt's a big strapping lad. How tall are you? Six what? Six four. Six foot four and built like, as we would say in Australia, built like a brick shithouse. And uh, so there's big strapping lad and, and Jesse, you know, he walks by and he turns and when Matt looks at me, his face lights up and his eyes light up. You know, I could see, I could see the look on, I, I happened to be looking at him right before he looked at me. So Matt, I was looking at you before you looked at me and you had a, a look on your face, but as you looked at me, it completely changed. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Because big old farm boy here is about to tell me a story about <laughs> something or other, you know, and then, and so then you guys came over and introduced yourselves and we had a, we had quite the chat and it sounds like, you know, like I'll give the short version and Jesse, you can probably give her the, the proper version to me. But basically, Jesse said she was a, you know, a hippie chick from the city who, you know, got involved with this rough, macho boy from the bush. And he was in your terms, breaking in horses. I don't really use that term, but you know, he was breaking in horses and you said, uh, Hey, you need to listen to this guy's podcast. You know, there's kind of a different way of doing things. And Matt's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And then I, and Matt was into mixed martial arts. So MMA and luckily enough, I had an MMA guy from Australia that Matt actually knew on the podcast who was Brendan O'Reilly. And so then you got him to listen to that episode and it sounds like he's listened to a number of other ones since that's the short version. But why don't, why don't you give me the version of that, whichever one of you wants to tell me the, 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 the full story because uh, <laughs> it's a great story. So, I mean, yeah, like you've just described, I met Matt. I sort of uh, did a big life change in order to move to Queensland and start a relationship with Matt. We met through fighting. Um, and so, yes, Matt was a big burly dude that fought but you know when we started chatting we both established that we were both really into animals and we both loved horses and I was like tick box tick box tick box he's like tall and he's handsome and he's rugged and he can beat people up like you know is there any anything a girl's not asking for anyways he looked great ass and a pair of wranglers right you know like so many tick boxes so you know next minute I'm living in Queensland and yeah we're on a farm and and we've talked about like getting horses again I come home one day and Matt's got this paint horse in the paddock and he's like hey bought a horse um which has now happened many times since um but this was the first of many of those conversations and I was like okay cool what's her story and she's like oh he's like oh she was a rodeo horse but she didn't buck enough so she got fired from the rodeo and she's kind of gone from home to home because um no one can really get their hands on her and can't catch her in a paddock and all stuff. I'm like, cool, first horse, babe. Nailed it. Inevitably, that resulted in Matt explaining to me that uh, how it's done is you throw a saddle on them and you ride the buck out, which would be like, you know, all well and good, I suppose, if that was your jam. I, it made me a little uncomfortable, but at this point I hadn't broken in a horse, so I didn't really know to argue with it. And he did exactly that, but we did it in a paddock with no round yard and no fences. So there was, there was, like it wasn't it wasn't glamorous there was a lot of swearing and it just didn't feel right so it inevitably meant that uh, I'm, I'm the academic in the household so like 
straight to Google. There needs to be a better way to do this. And I'm researching, I'm researching. I'm finding there's like other ways to do this. And then all of a sudden there's this guy and he's got these videos. And I was like, this feels a bit better. I'm like, hey, babe, you know, like maybe we could do this a different way. Like there's there's some other approaches. And then, you know, we ended up with a couple of wild um, Clydesdale cults and that continued this kind of, no, we'll do it this way, we'll do it this way. We upgraded to a round yard. We had upgraded to a round yard by then, made of bamboo at one point um, that we harvested from the garden, but eventually a metal one. Uh, But again, it was still really cowboy is probably the only way. It wasn't great. Anyway, so yeah, I'm like, no, there's got to be like this guy, like, Maybe watch some videos. Can you just just humor me and watch them? He's like, whatever. Don't know. I got this. Like, I was a ringer. This is how we did it out bush. I got it. And yeah, then obviously the podcast started, and um, I'm kind of going off like this with all the different horses that are coming through the farm, and I'm like matching steps and having conversations with horses. And Matt's like, it takes you a really long time to put a saddle on a horse, babe. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm waiting for a yes. And he's like, cool, could have gone for a road and been home and like, you know, slashed a paddock by now. And I'm like, I'm waiting for a yes. He's like, whatever. Like, So basically <laughs> growing up on like being a, a ringer and add on stations, it's you get the, you know, the two and three-year-olds in that haven't been ridden, they're ready to get broken in and you've got to get them ready in a week to go back out and start mustering. So it is just put a saddle on, you ride until they stop bucking, and then you put the brakes on, you put the steering on, and then you just wet blankets. It's just you're out in the paddock just hours and hours and hours and hours. And, you know, at the end of a week or two weeks, you've got a horse that it's not great, but they go, they stop, they turn left, they turn right. Mm. Um, And I just didn't – I wasn't open to a different way of doing it. But then, yeah, yeah, eventually you had Brendan on and I was like, all right, we've got common ground here. He will like humor me with this. And, yeah, then all of a sudden. Listen to it. And then yeah. It, yeah. And, I mean, you look, there were multiple things happening concurrently in our life and I think, you know, they were complementary to this sort of, you know, zero moment of truth where he was like, okay, we will. The fork in the road. We will, we will dip a toe. Um, and then it was a whole foot and next minute we would, yeah, taking an ice bath in it so yeah but I, I don't know i think that's the nuts and bolts of it really pretty much yeah so uh matt you listened to brendan o'reilly's podcast and the thing i loved about for you if you guys haven't at home that haven't if you haven't heard brendan o'reilly's podcast he is uh, an is an australian lives in texas now and was a an mma fighter and actually went to uh las vegas fighting in the ufc mm. And how I met, it was really interesting how I met Brendan is I had someone from Texas ask me to be on their podcast. It's a horsey kind of a podcast and it's about mindset. And I was talking to this guy on the phone and he said, yeah, you know, I said, yeah, I can do that. And he goes, oh, and my co-host is an Australian. I'm like, oh, even better. And he, they said, yeah, he's a UFC fighter. And I'm thinking, oh, no, some meathead, aggressive Australian who does not look at the world the way I look at the world this is not going to be fun. Well, it turns out I get on this podcast and Brendan O'Reilly's the co-host and um, not only is he not a meathead, he is into horses. I've watched a lot of my videos, kind of sees the world as the way they see the world and I end up having him on the pod, on my podcast and I think at the start I said something like, you're the, you're the archetypal warrior poet. You know, he's like Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse sort of thing, you know, reads philosophy and... Very and, eloquently uh, spoken. Yes, yeah, just a well-rounded human being. So you, 
So, Matt, it sounds like your first foray into some of this stuff might have been listening to the podcast with with Brendan. How, you know, how far removed from your reality was the way that Brendan was looking at the world when you listened to that podcast? Uh, like Jess said, there was a few things that were um, sort of starting to change the way I was looking at the world. Um, minus all of those things, it was like a 180 backflip. It would have been like, you know, running forward, stopping and turning around and running back out of the way. Just, I had no idea that these, you know, horses were these sentient beings that just had their own voices and their own energy. And I can't even explain how bad I feel learning all the things I know now to what I used to, how I used to treat and not treat, didn't treat them badly, but you know, use right, them yeah. as a, use them as a, a, you're a work tool. You know, it's like going to the shed to get a tractor to slash the paddock. You yeah. go to the, the ramp, yeah, you go to the horse pen, you pick up a horse, you put a saddle on, you go and master. It was, I didn't see them as an equal. So yeah, starting to listen to that podcast, it sort of just really, it started me on the journey to look at horses as not something to use. You know, that, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so Brennan's was the first one you listened to. Do you recall, the next uh, one you listened to? I don't recall the exact next one, but I think I've listened to pretty much well all of them because mm. I drive I drive a lot for work, sort of okay. you know, out because Australia is quite uh, Queensland's quite big and spread out. So um, with one of our businesses, I do a lot of driving to different houses to to work on home. So hours in the car a week, and yeah, it was just podcast. Some people podcast. binge Netflix. We binge audiobooks podcast. and podcasts. Yeah. And, yeah. So it was just one after the next after the next, which then led me down to the you know the, the soul and it was a lot of different like one podcast would lead me to another podcast and then that one would lead me to another one um really got to connect with yeah the, the energy side of things um your soul the purpose of the soul just really wild and wonderful things that i think fundamentally changed who i who i am as a person do you think it changed you or do you think it allowed you to reveal more of the real you i'll go i'll go a bit woo here for a second i Please think do. that i think that um everyone obviously has a soul um and i think that our souls have amnesia when you know when we're born and when we pass away, I think our souls go to a collective area where they can sort of defrag for a minute, you know, it, download all the things they've learned in the previous life. And then they can make a decision or a choice on what, um, what path they want to go down next. But I think there's a thing that happens that when they go, yep, this is, this is the meat suit that I'm going to be put into. Um, and this is the journey that I'm going to go on to. And this is what I need to learn in this life. But when we're born, we lose it. The we lose what we thought, you know, what our purpose was. Forget. We lose. We we forget the amnesia. The soul just basically has amnesia, and we have to try and relearn what our what what our journey needs to be. And I think listening to different podcasts, getting out of your head, doing ice baths, meditating helps put those pieces back together for your energy and your soul to know what it was meant to do in this life, if that makes 
if that makes sense. When you described it to me originally, this idea, it was like, um, you know, when you are having a conversation with someone and you're trying to recall a name and it's like right there, like, you know, it, like you can see it in your inner mind. It's like right on the tip of your tongue, but you cannot for the life of you get there. Or if you wake up from having a really vivid dream and it's in your brain and you try and describe it to someone, but those words just don't exist. It's like that sensation for our soul until potentially one day something happens and all of a sudden it's that moment when you wake up at 3 a.m. and you remember the name but the conversation was two days ago and it's no longer that that helpful except it is helpful hmm. so it's that feeling but then all of a sudden something goes yes that's what it was the door that's opens, why I'm here the door opens that little bit and you get a sneak peek of what you were what you're meant to do and then from there it's up to you to to keep going down that journey and just keep pushing doors open and and staying on that path of reconnection with self, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. You know, what you were describing a minute ago about the, you know, the way you look at it where the soul has amnesia when it's born and then when it dies, it goes, downloads all that stuff and then it then it takes its next, its next meat suit, as you said, but it, you know, it signs up for the next mm for the next journey and, and you know it's a very uh, I think Buddhist way of looking at it. like I think the Buddhists look at it to where have you ever heard of the bardo you know what the bardo is no. the Tibetans say that when you uh, when you die you are a soul without a body and you spend 49 days being a soul without a body and then you come back and you're your next incarnation. And it's interesting that 49 day thing because so I've read a book called DMT, the spirit molecule. I don't know. Have you ever read DMT, the spirit molecule? Yeah, but we know what we've, DMT yeah, is. Yeah, we've heard of the book. You know, and... you know what DMT is, but, <laughs> yeah. but so, yeah. you know, so DMT is the world's most powerful hallucinogen and it's called in this, this book, it's called DMT, the spirit molecule. You know, when you, when you, access large amounts of dmt it's like your it's like your connection to this the spirit world and and apparently when so the in your body apparently the the pineal gland which is rests on the roof of your mouth yeah when you were born you get given this huge dose of dmt and when you die you get given this huge dose of dmt mm -hmm. but there's dmt in everything we eat there's dmt in spinach there's mm -hmm. dmt in broccoli everything has a bit of dmt in it and where am i going with this so the pineal gland, which produces DMT, it forms on day 49 ah. of, the, of the fetus. And I think on day 49 is the day you actually decide am I male or female too. Uh, but anyway, when I read that um, DMT, the spirit molecule book, it was written by a guy named Rick Straussman and he got, he got permission from the US government to do scientific studies on dmt with people and it was a big old circle jerk he had to get approval from the fda which is the food and drug administration the the da the dea which is a drug enforcement agency and the uh, like the surgeon general or something or other he had to get permission from all three of them and the dea said i'll sign off on it if you can get the fda to sign off at it and the FDA said, I'll sign off on it if you can get someone to to compound human-grade DMT. But in order to get 
someone to compound human grade DMT, he had to get the uh, the Surgeon General to sign off on it. And so everybody said yes, but he got to get the other guy to say yes first. It was and it was a three way circle joke. Mm. Anyway, he ends up getting the the um, permission to do it. So they get this human grade compounded DMT compounded, and they do placebo dose, low dose, and high dose DMT studies on a lot of people. It's a fascinating book to listen to. But what was really interesting was everybody that had high-dose DMT experiences, their stories that they had when they came back from that experience correlated very, very closely to the experience people have with alien abductions. Oh, wow. And like very, very closely. And most alien abductions occur around 3 o'clock in the morning. And 3 o'clock in the morning is when your body produces the most DMT that it produces normally. And I also think that most people that had an alien abduction um, experience was 3 o'clock in the morning and they'd been under quite a bit of stress, I think. But anyway, in the end of the book, he talks about, you know, he can give someone a narcotic blocker so they can take mm. a narcotic and it doesn't affect them. Well, you yeah. can also give someone a psychedelic blocker to where you, yeah, right. you, you can't have a psychedelic experience. And they did an experiment with people giving them a psychedelic blocker. And when they did, they basically had severe depression. Like the world was like black and white. It was shades of gray. There was no color. It was basically severe depression and so in the end of the book he said so what my i think is so think about right now let's say you had a, a a radio in the room with you and you turned it on you could tune it to an fm station and listen to it and those waves those fm waves are going through the room between you two right now and you can't even see mm. them, but you could pick mm -hmm. it up yeah. okay so in the end of the book his basic thing was that we have a certain amount of DMT in us all the time, which allows us to tune into channel normal. Mm -hmm. Okay, this normal life that we live is because we have a certain amount of DMT in us. If we have no DMT in us, we tune into channel blur. Mm -hmm. Life is blur, severely depressed, and there's no real color. And then, but if you have excess DMT, you tune into channel abnormal, which is here. That channel mm. is here among us. We just cannot tune into it because, mm. you know, it's like that FM radio station. It's kind of like dogs can, can hear more on the sound range than we can. Um, we can only see certain amounts of light, mm. whereas other animals and stuff can see further along the, on, the, on the light spectrum. So, yeah, so he's he, the, reading that book. And I think in I think about the same time I read that book, I read um, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and they talk about the 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 bardo, the forty nine days where your soul exists without a without a body, before it embarks on its next mm. journey. And then reading that one, he was saying that the pineal gland develops mm. at day forty nine. Mm. So it's almost like the, the way I looked at it is like it's almost like when someone dies, someone else is conceived at the same time. And 49 mm. days later, that, that soul has downloaded its stuff and it goes, okay, that, that body I'm Time going go. right there. And this might sound completely crazy, but, but just when you said yeah. that, Matt, it was, it was like, oh, yeah, it, it sounds a bit like the way the Tibetans yeah. uh, look at stuff.
Definitely. And yeah. I think that we have to um, look after our pineal gland. I think there's a lot of diet and um, exercise and stuff like that, that if we don't do it and we're sedentary and we drink alcohol and we do, you know, different types of, you know, illicit drugs and, and have a poor sleep regime, it can really start to calcify the pineal gland, which limits its release of the, the DMT, which could lead to why these days yeah based on what you were just saying makes so much sense about they become so gray and damp and damp and because they're just you Mm. know i don't know what studies or if there's been studies that have been done to look at that but i think that could be something that would be helpful for people in the the setting that we're going to try and and help people in giving them regimes to try and get that pineal gland maybe producing more of that normal range of dmt to help them feel better but there's so many like you know even looking at there's so many things in life now where there's these old stories from old cultures, you know, the 49 days and all of these things, which, you know, through the filter of modern world and, you know, science explaining everything, we're like, oh, it's just like old world fairy tales and it's just the stories and all of those things, which, you know, if you give it clout, then for you it's very real. But for so many people they go, oh, no, no, they're just old world stories. They don't know anything. Science knows the answer. But then all of a sudden science explains it, you know, this event that happens at day 49, we've clinically proven it. And then all of a sudden people go, hey, know, maybe there was something in this 49. Like maybe, okay. There's so many things, we are old wives' tales, which we know. Like even the old wives' tale, oh, I feel it in my gut. You know, like how many times have we said that? Great, I feel it in my stomach. Something's not right. We never really give it clout, but then all of a sudden they go, "Oh, hang on a minute!" Like your gut brain are intrinsically linked, and you literally, like, if you feel it in your gut, there is a communication pathway taking place, and it's real. But for so many people, mm. it was just an old wives' tale until all of a sudden science was like, "No, no, no, that's real." Yeah, yeah and I think Same maybe way. the term "guts," like someone not having any guts you know, usually linked to like bravery or, or, you know, courage, things like that. It's almost those people, ask me how I know, don't have access to their, like their, their root chakras, like that, that especially mm. that gut, you know, that, that gut chakra, there's stuff blocked in there. Yeah. Yeah. That conversation went uphill i was going to say downhill but now let's say it went uphill in a hurry right there um i want to i want to get a bit into you guys background because like the 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 journey that you guys have had and so i'm going to kind of do this individually and we'll start out with you jesse because you had told me i was kind of a hippie chick from the from the city um did you you said you grew up in queensland then moved to victoria and then moved back to queensland is that what happened yeah so i'm originally from uh probably about an hour and a half from where we are now um and then uh, my parents sort of separated and we moved into we've got rid of the farm and moved into a townhouse and then moved to brisbane and then as soon as i finished school i got got the hell out of dodge and went to melbourne uh and spent 10 years there nearly um, and was hell-bent on never coming back to Queensland. I knew that I wasn't built for living in the city, but I wasn't totally sure where I was built for living. Um, and so I was just kind of doing the thing in the city down there, um, working in like running marketing consultancies and stuff like that. And then I started um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, and so let's, through let's, that... Let's, start, let's, talk about, let's talk about that because there is a – you guys met – 
through martial right. arts. And I kind of want to, Jesse, I want to ask you, how did you get, what was your lead into Brazilian jiu-jitsu? What, what was the calling? Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? So this uh, is <laughs> super embarrassing, but um, I used to always watch like, you know, sp- movies where there would be like a Russian spy and this like ripping hot heroin who could kick ass I was like I want to be just like that when I grow up um but I'm like a hardwired scaredy cat and the thought of walking into like fight gyms are really scary places right so the thought of walking into a fight gym and this was before like martial arts became really accessible like they are now they were still like big sweaty places with stinky burly dudes and not not a lot of women were seen uh so Annette was like no can't do that uh, and then I ended up in a relationship uh, that turned south um, and ended up quite violent and had a really ugly ending. Uh, and at that point, there was a particular moment um, when violence was occurring. And I just, it was like, you know, it's like when someone goes south on a horse, it's like time stops for a split second and you have really mm-hmm. like these weirdly rational thoughts. And I was having this one of those moments going, I don't want to fight back because I might hurt this person. Like, what if I hurt them? Like, I'm, I, I'm a girl. Girls aren't allowed to fight and hurt people. Like, and then anyway, the events unfolded and whatever happened, happened. And it, like, stuck with me. I was like, what the, f- I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, sorry. Like, what on earth? Like, that is just, like, why would you think that? That is ridiculous. So as it, fate would be, I met another guy who um, had a, a fight background as well. And he was like, you should really come and try jiu-jitsu. Because I'd always thought I wanted to do like um, like boxing or Muay Thai. And he's like, I think he might really like jiu-jitsu. Come and give it a try with me. And I did. And like anyone that does jiu-jitsu will tell you, it is a rapid downward spiral. Like once you are in, you are in hook, line and sinker. And it becomes like an obsession and it did and I was there every day religiously training I had a really amazing gym and an amazing professor that was really steeped in its lineage which for me really resonated um and yeah I never looked back and now you know it was such an incredible lesson being able to go we teach women and we teach girls to play nice we never learn that you can hit another person and they don't break like you know, as women, we think, oh, if I push someone or I hit someone or something like that, they might break because that's what we're taught growing up. Um, but then all of a sudden I was like, I can really hurt someone before that. Like you can, a person bends a long way before they break. And um, so for me, learning jujitsu was incredibly empowering and made me realize that you can always fight back. And now I'm incredibly passionate about telling every woman I meet, I'm like, just go. The most vulnerable place a woman can be on is on her back with a man on top of her. And if you know how to get out of that and get up and at least be able to run away, how incredible is that? And it, the flip side of it, you might actually be able to like kick some ass and defend yourself. But you know, whatever happens, happens. If nothing else, you will feel more confident in yourself and, you know, you won't. And probably not even end up in the situation. Exactly. You won't have that vulnerable energy coming in and putting you in predicaments. But anyway, uh, sorry, I get segued. Um, no, that's, through that, that's, that's, I, per- that's perfectly fine. You know, I talk at at clinics, you know, helping people with their horses. I, I often talk about how your your the energy you bring to the situation whether is it a is it a timid energy is a confident energy and i say you know i ask has any women here ever taken any uh 
self-defense classes and usually mm. someone will put their hand up and I say, how do they tell you to walk in, in car parks late at night? Looking at the ground like ooh, ooh, scurrying from light to light? Or do they tell you to have a, a confident posture and look like you know what you're doing? And that might stop you from having to defend yourself. And, and yeah. so I, I talk about that that uh, a bit with the horse. It's not like you're trying to be something you're not, but you know the energy that you bring to the the situation has a lot yeah. to do with how the situation unfolds. I want to ask you, because you, you used the word empowered at the end there, and I thought that was really cool. Aside from the, the, aside from the, 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 the fighting part of it, okay, the self-defense part of it, just the doing of it, do you feel like, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, like, like let's say you never ever have to use it, but just the doing of it, because the reason I'm asking this, because when we had the podcast summit in San Antonio, Robin guided 12 people two different nights through an ice bath experience. And mm. for them, it was very empowering because they did something that scared them that they thought they couldn't do. And when they did it and thrived in that environment, they're like a different human. Mm. Is it similar, something similar to that? It it is. And, you know, when you say it's all well and good to walk through a car park and not present outwardly like you're a victim, but if you know in your core that, like, I may not be able to win, but I'm going to give you a bloody good run for your money. And so, and that, like that authenticity piece, we can walk into a paddock with our horses and present big, but if they know you're small on the inside, they will still right. march all over you. So if you've got that big inside of you as well, um, so yeah, it's a hundred percent like, you know, it gives you this sensation of, I can pretend I'm big on the outside, but I know that even if I can't win, you're going to have a tough time taking me down. And it gives you this sensation from the inside out going, there's not much that I won't do now for fear of being attacked or being vulnerable, whatever it might be, because I know inside of me I've conquered all of these things like you know what I like about MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu so much is it's full contact sparring so like you go hell for leather and are genuinely trying to win I want to say the words hurt the other person because that is the objective of it in a safe but environment in a safe environment but they're trying to do the same for you so you get to actually test it out there's some martial arts that you don't get to do that but you get to discover whether or not you can hold your own against a 120 kilo man and you get to see you get to test it and that sense of achievement at the other end even if you didn't win the fight but you know you held your own for five minutes and they didn't submit you or whatever it was then yeah it is it's this and it is much like conquering an ice bath or conquering any you know anything that makes you uncomfortable anything that makes you uncomfortable like in life that we live such beautiful comfortable lives now you know we don't have a lot of opportunities to be uncomfortable um and jujitsu is very uncomfortable um and it does it gives you this incredible sensation afterwards of going fuck it's not sorry i swear it's <laughs> not much i can't do now <laughs> that's all right um have you guys seen a, a movie called stuts on netflix Mm. called what stuts s-t-u-t-z so it's jonah hill you know the comedian guy yeah it's his him and his therapist and he actually films his therapy sessions and his therapist has this this 
you know, abbreviated version of therapy. He wants people to be able to walk out feeling better than they walk in. Yeah. Not six months of once a week sort of thing. And he, he, he's going, he draws these little diagrams and starts the therapist actually has Parkinson's. So he, his handshakes uh-huh. as he draws these little diagrams. But one of the things he says, he talks about once you realize that your life is going to contain pain, uncertainty, and constant work, things change. And, and that means, and I think it means not avoiding pain and not being scared of uncertainty you know that's you just Mm. said oh we live these comfortable lives these comfortable Mm. lives involve avoiding pain and avoiding uncertainty you only want to do the certain things yeah and 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 you want to and you want to you want to get to where you win the lottery and i don't have to work anymore yeah Yeah. you know and he said the that that's that right there those having not having those three things is the recipe for depression yeah having certainty having no pain and getting to where you don't have to to do things. Um, you know, like the pain thing, it's interesting we're talking about ice baths here. You know, the I read a book called Dopamine Nation a while ago. Have you ever read Dopamine Nation? No, but it's, it's the on one the that, list. yeah, it talks about so, dopamine Well, you know what, the, the easiest way, to, you don't have to read the book, just listen to the podcast with Andrew Huberman about dopamine. Mm. Um, you ever listen to the Huberman Lab? Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So listen to the one he t- talked about dopamine, but that book and that podcast both say that, you know, you have a set level of dopamine and you have dopamine spikes. You have the things that yeah. give you a lot of dopamine. But when you're, you're not doing something that gives you a lot of dopamine, you have this set level, almost like your set level mm. of DMT. Yeah, uh, your set point. And he, the more spikes of dopamine you have, which means the more really good food you eat and you know let's say this bloody telephone this phone we've got here Mm. and you get bings and beeps and likes and stuff like that the more you get dopamine the more often you get it the less your set level is your set level is a lot lower Uh, we're not used we're not supposed to have dopamine all the time we're not supposed to eat tasty food every meal okay it's supposed to be just enough to survive on us not we're not supposed Mm -hmm. to have this glut of stuff but anyway in that podcast he says and the book too the antidote or the, the, the way to raise your set level of dopamine is pain. Pain, mm. exposure to painful situations, raises your set level of dopamine. And then it goes on to say that the ice bath is one of those things. And the, they talk about um, amounts of dopamine. And I think cocaine and, and sex give you the same amount of dopamine. Whereas an ice bath gives you more dopamine than either cocaine or sex. Mm. There's a dopamine, there's a four hour like dopamine spike that you have. Oh, it feels like more, you've more like, six coffees. More like, your, more like your set level is raised up. It's not that spike that goes away. It just kind of stays there. So it's, mm. you know, yeah, it's interesting about that. But anyway, yeah, you were ho- talking about, you're talking about the, the martial arts and get to yes. about the, you know, that. And then it reminded me of this Stutz thing. I've only, it's a movie. It's about 90 minutes long. We only watched the first 60 minutes of it last night. I had someone recommend it to me. And yeah, yeah definitely worth, definitely worth uh, looking at. And it's yeah. so interesting because I, you've probably heard me talk about it before, but um, Matt, have you ever read the book, um, The Masks of Masculinity by Lewis Howes? No. 
No, I've got a list of books that I've got from um, listening to you, and it's just I've been checking them off one after the other. And yeah, you know and- that one. So Lewis Howes uh, talks about, you know, because men, at least in the past, in society, were told you're not supposed to cry, you're not supposed to show fear, all this stuff, mm-hmm. and so we learn to we get taught to hide our emotions from a young age, and then, but when emotions come up, we develop these masks to hide them. So mm-hmm. one's the aggressive mask. Okay, so I'm sure when you were fighting, you probably met some guys who that's their that's their go to. You know, you 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 say something that 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 pokes me in my wounds. I'll wound you sort of thing. Uh, You know, so there's the aggressive mask. There's the achievement mask. And in this book, he says a lot of CEOs are unhappy because they're, they're just covering up their insecurities by. Being a CEO, not all of them, but some, you know. But one he talks about is what he calls the joker mask. And the joker mask is people who have learnt to crack jokes Mm. all their life instead of when when the serious conversations come up. And in that he says there's a place in LA called, I think it's called the Comedy Store or something like that. And it's a place where a lot of big-time comedians get their start. He has a full-time psychiatrist on staff. And he says, if you want to be a comedian here, you have to see my psychiatrist because you, because of the fact you are a professional comedian, you're severely depressed. You have spent all your life cracking jokes to avoid the serious conversations. And mm. Jonah Hill is a comedian and this bloody movie with him in it's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly, yeah. you know, John, Can- John Candy, uh, John Candy, what's his name? Farley, um, Chris Farley. Yeah, you Robin know, Williams. The, well, he talks about Robin Williams in this book, but yeah, but you know, you think yeah. about think about people like Chris Farley and um, Jonah Hill, who are probably overweight as kids, mm-hmm. and of course, overweight kids get a lot of shit put on them by other kids, and so you've got to have some way of deflecting that, and it's the it's the 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 joke mask anyway fascinating it's yeah. fascinating fascinating movie to, to watch so we're up to your fighting there jesse let's let's yeah. let's because so, you, yeah, Je- you and you and matt meet in the in the in the fighting thing. we so did so so matt why don't you coached. let's let's yeah. just stay there jesse let's stay like you're at the fighting stage now matt i want to back up with you and get your i kind of want to get your story up to when you met jesse and then we'll we'll go forward with your story your together story from there but um all right well, i suppose um I left school at a very young age. I was about 14. School wasn't for me. And I... For you Americans, he didn't say 40. He said 14, which in... 14. uh, 14, yeah. Year nine. Um, And in order to do that, I said that I was going to TAFE. So I signed up to go and do a TAFE. So TAFE for the rest of the world is technical and further education. So it's like trade school. Yeah. So they were like, all right, you can leave school if you go to the trade school. But in the trade school, I did a certificate two in beef cattle production. And then part of that, I went for a couple of weeks. Part of that, we had to find work placement. And I basically got the newspaper called The Country Life, went through the the ads and found someone looking for a, just a jackaroo to go droving. Um, so I rang up, signed up and basically didn't go back to TAFE. It was only supposed to be out there for a week. And I stayed out there for months and months. Um, and how and old then, were you at the time? Well, I would have been 14 and maybe six weeks. So, yeah, four, yeah, 14 and a half. Say 14 and a half. Interesting story because uh, I've been home twice this year to visit my parents and 
the you know hadn't been home during COVID, so the first trip, which was back in June, kind of got me thinking about pulling the stories out of Dad that I haven't got out of him before, and I learnt that he <laughs> very similarly. So he he moved, actually they were on a big farm, you know, probably twenty five miles from town or something rather, and he actually moved into town uh, during year four, I think, so the fourth grade for Americans. Um, and was living with his mum's sister, I believe, going to school in town. But then he went back out to the farm, I think, at the end of that year, and he did the, I think he done the fifth grade in town, moved back to the farm, and it was a one-room farmhouse with, you know, and he was the only one in the fifth grade. Oh, so he was the only one in the sixth grade, sorry. He was the only one in the sixth class. And so... He actually did the fifth grade again because hmm. there was like four or five of them, but there was he was the only one in the sixth grade. So the teacher didn't teach him the sixth grade stuff. So he did fifth grade again, and then when in sixth grade, his father sent him off to a um, boarding school, but he only lasted there a month before his father said, "You know what? There's a drought. We're going to put the sheep out in the road." So dad came home and he sent. So my grandfather sent my father and his younger brother with you know. I don't know how many head of sheep out in the road. They had a cart, a horse and cart, like it looked like a little covered wagon sort of a thing, and some dogs and some tinned beef, and away they went. And so, yeah, Dad went driving when he was fifteen, like you too. So that's that's cool. So where did you, where where'd you go? Uh, we were up near Gundawindi, so we okay. started sort of Gundawindi, went to St George Highway, um, through to Nindy Gully, the old Nindy Gully pub, um, and then sort of back around to Condamine. Uh, and chinchilla. They were um, cattle from a feedlot that weren't doing very well in the feedlot. There was a lot of the, um, it was the pink eye was sort of going through. So they're like, we need to get them out and just get them on the road. So um, for the few guys from the rest of the world, so a drover, if you ever, if you saw the movie Australia with with Hugh Jackman and, and Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman's character was called, I think it was The Drover, I think was his nickname. But a drover in Australia is so when times get tough where there's not a lot feed for your cattle, sheep, or whatever, you know, farmers can will hire somebody, a drover, to what we call take that the stock on the road. So they take them along the highway and graze them along the road, and they eat the grass on the sides of the on the sides of the road. So if you've ever seen, you know, a picture of a, of Australia, where people drive along and they come to a, a mob of sheep or a mob of cattle or something on the road. That's what they're doing there, and that's what Matt's referring to here. Is that's what a what a drover does. So yeah, from there, that was my real first experience with horses. So we're like on a horse for 12, 14 hours a day. Um, and then from there, I was like, there's not enough money uh, to do this. You know, I was a young fella trying to, you know, save up for whatever I was saving up for at the time. Um, so then I found out that if you went to ag college, you could get a degree, which basically started you off in different salary brackets for for the position on like a station hand and a jackaroo um so i went to emerald ag college for a year to get a, a degree to get paid more at the end of that year i realized that that was probably i want to own i want to own a ranch i want to own a, a property uh, i don't want to just work on one so my father owned a metal fabrication business in brisbane and i rang him up towards the end and i was like dad can you apprentice me and he basically said, I've been waiting for the day that you asked 
to come back to be a boilermaker. So I left the farm work, left the left the properties, left the station. Like it's a, it's a lifestyle that I love so much, and to come back to Brisbane to try and get a a trade, a trade background, I suppose, to be able to make the money to then go and buy my own station um, was the driving factor for that decision. So came back to Brisbane, worked for the family business. I managed to get my trade done in three years. They normally take four, but because it was a family-run business, I could do 14, 15 hours a day. Um, and my dad had a lot of friends in the same industry. So instead of just doing one thing at one workshop, I was able to go to like 20 or 30 different types of workshops and work from steel that's, you know, 0.5 thick, like you know, one millimeter thick, right through to 100 millimeters thick of steel plate and all in between. Um, towards the end of that, I found a girlfriend and then moved to Mackay with her when I finished my apprenticeship, got married, had kids, and um, worked in the mines. And basically, we bought a little 10-acre farm, and I, that's when I initially started to get back into horses um, and had a, uh, what's the one? had a really good experience with the first few horses I got until the marriage started to not be fantastic, and I started to... Um, shut down with you know different things that went on like really started to put up walls um, and looking back now I didn't connect the dots back then but that it's the working with horses when those walls were going up something changed and I just wasn't getting the joy wasn't getting the the, the fun and the horses weren't responding to me the same way that they had been um, fast forward I think it was eight years that uh, marriage ended and I moved back into Brisbane and started working for the family business again and basically we started fighting, oh, I started fighting. sorry there, yeah. yeah so I started fighting towards the the end of my relationship uh, with my first wife uh, and that was a bit of an outlet I just I was unhealthy and overweight and I just wanted to try and get fit um, and then from the fitness side of things well, so it was more for the, it wasn't about the fighting part of it, it was about the fitness part of it that, that drew you into it? Initially, yeah, it was actually a funny story. So there's a few friends that I have in Mackay um, and we were all sort of in the, same, in the same sort of category as overweight and we used to go hunting a fair bit and we would, you know, have to run to chase the dogs that, you know, caught the pigs in the cane and all that sort of stuff. But we were, we were overweight. We all worked in the mines and we all ate way too much and drank too much. So one trip you know, a few rumbos under our belt on a property where you all said, we should start a, an underground fight ring, you know, because we, we, sorry. So we, I watched the movie Warrior with the Aussie lad and Tom Hardy. Um, it's called The Warrior. I watched that movie and my friends had watched it and I said, I, like, I want to do that. I want to, I want to do that. So we were all, you know, a couple of rums deep and I said to him, let's, let's start an underground shed fight game like let's make some money out of it get fit and we'll all you know do a round robin and we'll have three or four fights in one night and the winner takes the lot and they're like yep 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 and i was the only one that took it seriously i found an old k1 kickboxer in blackwater where i was working in the mines i asked him to train me and i started training with him every afternoon like rain hail or shine every afternoon i'd be in this little shed and i went from 120 kilos to about 88 kilos, just old school kickboxing, 
trainer, a Kiwi fella. And um, David Kirikino was his name. And the date rolled around for the underground shed fight and I turned up and a few other people turned up and my two mates hadn't necessarily been training or doing anything like that. So it was just a bit of fun. No one, no, we didn't, you know, we just had a bit of a wrestle and a bit of a spar and a bit of fight. But through that first initial process of getting fit and having a go, I found that you could sign up as an amateur with no club to come down to Brisbane and fight MMA as an amateur. You just, you paid $90 or whatever the entry fee was. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not going through this trans- transformation and learning all these skills to then go back and start drinking and partying again or uh, hunting and drinking and eating crap food and gaining the weight. So yeah, I had my first amateur fight probably 11 years ago and fell in love with it. I lost my first one on points um, and just absolutely fell in love with the sport. And I had two more amateur fights and then I was like, I'm sick of paying to enter these things. And someone said that you can get paid to fight. So I was like, well, how do you do that? And they said, well, you've got to turn pro. So I just decided one day that I'd turn pro and started taking professional fights after having three amateur fights and not really having a club behind me. And then I found Mackay MMA and they started doing the jujitsu side of things. And yeah, next, next thing I knew, I had about 16 or 17 professional fights at the, like at the highest Australian level down in Melbourne. And through working in the different oil and gas and mines, I was always really without a club because I used to work so so remotely. Um, and yeah, I was the guy that would turn up to these high profile events with no sponsors, no club, and um, barely anyone in your corner. Yeah, sometimes I'd have to get people to come and like meet people. Like, oh, do you mind holding a bucket for me? In, in the corner of these Someone events. wrap my hands Someone for me, wrap my hands. I, I used to wrap my own hands behind the scenes in some fights and bits and pieces, but I loved it. I loved it. And through that, we met a lot of people and yeah, yeah, that's how we met. So let's talk about that. Like, it seems like you just jumped right in there without knowing a whole lot about it. So your first, so you just been, you've been doing kickboxing, your first, your amateur fight, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of grappling involved in, MMA, like what what happened there? So it's like you so, had one of the skills out of like five that you need. Yeah, pretty much. So um, it was really funny because I got my trainer. David came to Brisbane and he wrapped my hands and I, I still keep in contact with a fair few of the refs and the judges and, you know, I'm still involved in, in the sport. And um, Thomas, he said, when I signed off on your gloves, um, he goes, this guy doesn't know how to grapple. Like David had wrapped my hands like bombing knockers, like my thumbs didn't move. I couldn't, there was no grabbing or anything like that. And then halfway through the second round, I rolled the wrong way into an armbar. You know, right before this event started, the the kickboxing coach YouTubed some jujitsu stuff and he's like, all right, so there's two things that I want you to do, a rear naked <laughs> choke if you get in position and an armbar. And I watched about five minutes of how to do an armbar <laughs> And um, I rolled the wrong way into my into the armbar, which resulted in not a great time for me. And at that event was um, another coach from Mackay called Dave, Dave Garnham. Um, and he saw me after the fight because they announced me from Mackay. So he saw me after the fight. He's like, oh, I see you from Mackay and you rolled the wrong way into an armbar. I've got a jiu-jitsu gym. 
because my stand up was crisp. Like I had, I love stand up. So if someone, All you right. know, kickboxing, it's, it's great. And then I started training jujitsu with Mackay MMA and yeah, so got into that. And then I said to him, look, I, I don't want to, I'm sick of getting, I'm sick of paying to fight. You know, can we, can we do some professional fights? And at the time they had no professional fighters. So I was their first professional fighter um, that came out of Mackay MMA at that time. That would have been Oh, 12 years ago, I suppose. And now they've got like they've got some really great guys up in Mackay. So, but and yeah. The thing, the thing I no, said to you when I first met you in, in Equitana was like, you've got this cool vibe about you. And I tend to think of people that are into, especially say MMA, have, and this is probably a totally wrong assumption, but tend to have a bit of an aggressive outlook on life you know like you don't appear to have that so for the fights where did you get your mm, i don't know if drive. i want to say aggression but that 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 drive to like i'm going to get punched in the face and i i'm i'm going to take it where's that where's that come from i'm very competitive so when i like when i do something i don't half ass doing it so during the fight, I can be, and there's a difference between anger and aggression. Um, I never got angry. Um, like, sorry, in my personal life, I got angry. But when I used to fight, I never, ever got angry. I was, I always tried to be really aggressive, um, but the anger never showed itself. So the aggressiveness just came from the the drive to compete and to win. That's that was my my drive, but I lost my aggression and that's when i think i spoke to you in equitana when we had that um we did the youtube interview and jez was saying that i had a mindset coach that helped me get back into that that state of aggressiveness i suppose i think you know there's a distinct difference between anger and aggression but anger yeah. can fuel aggression and you had a beautiful source of anger um fueling you readily uh and subsequently you had you know a, a a pot of gas to pull out of to mm. fuel your aggression. Yeah. Uh, but then that, you know, pot dried up at some point or got diminished and subsequently it became a little bit more challenging to switch on the aggression. To, yeah, to switch on the, the the drive. And I suppose even the, yeah. You know, with at clinics, I'll, I'll, a lot of times or sometimes there's someone who, who needs to be, be a little bit firmer with their horse and I'm not talking about being nasty to them or hurting them in any way but they need to kind of what you'd call firm them up a little bit and when they mm. do they overdo it and their face like screws up and i'm like hey you've got to be able to do that with a smile on your face you're not mad at them you just need to be firm about what you're doing there and i say it's it's very hard for most people to be firm without having an emotional attachment to it. whether you've got to give your child a good talking to or your spouse a good talking to, or if you're an employer or you're a manager at work and you've got to give somebody a good talking to, it's very hard to be firm and direct for most people without having an emotional attachment to it, like without having some emotion coming out. And that emotion for the most part usually is is anger in in that. So you said your 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 you know, the fuel for your fire dried up a little bit with the, like it's the anger part. And you mentioned that you're very competitive and I was going to wait till later, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you now, 
you know, you, you've, you've gone all the way from boyfriend the bush to fighting to getting a psychotherapy degree, which is quite the path. And so you've obviously are looking at the world completely differently now than you used to. What I want to know is, are you still competitive? Or have you kind of looked back and thought that competitiveness was actually an unhealed part of yourself? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I haven't been put in the environment to be competitive since I've changed the way I look at things. So my question to that would be, have you not been put into that environment or have you not felt the need to put yourself in that environment? I haven't felt this need to put myself into that competitive mm, environment. Okay. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I still like to test myself, not so much be competitive, but every now and then I'll have something pop up on my Facebook. Um, there was a, an island swim off Queensland. It was a three and a half K ocean water swim. So those sort of things pop up and I'm like, no training. Didn't do any laps in the pool. I'm like, I'll have a crack at that. So I still like to do the things that put me in uncomfortable situations to, to test myself to see if I've still got, still got it. But I haven't had the urge to t test myself against someone. Sorry, I did a jiu-jitsu competition a couple of months ago. I just started getting back into jiu-jitsu after having such a long time off. And I had a, had a role which I really enjoyed, but obviously I tried to, I wanted to win, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same feeling that I used to get when I would step in the cage. I was more relaxed and just, I was just wanted to enjoy the experience, the experience of it. So, yeah. There's less self-flagellation involved with it now. Mm. There's less, you know, I'm doing it as a, and this is from, I mean, obviously I'm not Matt, I'm not inside his head, but from an observational perspective, it's less about doing it in a self-punishment way and more of a, this will be a fun experience. I'm mm. going to do this to see what happens and see what I can do with myself kind of way. Yeah, That's interesting that, because Matt's saying he used to do it because he was competitive and you kind of hinted there that he was doing it because he was kind of punishing himself. So oh, yeah, let's absolutely. have a chat about, let's have a yeah. chat about that. Cause yeah, the, where, I mean, where I was, where I was going with it was, was the, was the, um, the competitive part was that like external validation type stuff. Was that like, I beat you. So you think something of me and now it's more about inner, stuff maybe that's just my mm. my take on it but I, I was just i was just wondering what's changed uh you know what i mean you know the, the the kind of the question i had was what made you get into the fighting and now that you look at the world differently does the fighting thing seem differently that's all that's what i was trying to get at yeah no it does it does after going through that um yeah the, the transformational process that we're still on on our journey with I still enjoy, you know, going and watching and, you know, supporting teammates and bits and pieces. Um, and my son has just got into jiu-jitsu, so I'm really enjoying um, stepping back as a, a competitor and stepping up as a, a mentor or a coach to give my mm -hmm. son, you know, the little, the little insights and, you know, things to help him on his journey. But, yeah, I don't, I, I'm just really happy at the moment, I suppose. 
if that like I just have no yeah that's that's cool okay so now we're going to get to the you and jesse meeting and then where it all goes from there so where did you guys meet at it was obviously it's some sort of fighting thing no so originally it was just through <laughs> it was through social media um because okay. we all have the same sort of people friends and and, right. and yeah. family and stuff the like fight that. scenes it's very like it's a bit clicky and a bit small so everyone kind of knows each other like you, you have yeah. these you know so basically um i had a marriage that ended and i Kind of had a bit of time off, and then got back into a relationship um, with a young a young girl um, who was about eight years younger than I was, and we dated for a couple of years. Um, and then when that sort of wound up, I had a year to myself. I'm like, I. He was on the prowl. <laughs> I had a conversation. You know, I had this this thing that I always I, I wanted to I wanted to I needed to love someone, right? So I met my my first wife really young, eighteen. Got married at nineteen twenty. And I just might, I felt like I just needed, I didn't need love. I didn't want love, but I love loving people. Um, so that didn't work out. I had a few girlfriends in between that I met, um, the, my part, uh, my girlfriend that I was with for two and a half years. And then towards the end of that, I was like, I need to love myself. Like I need mm. to take some time off and just work out what I want. Like I, I used to just love doing everything and I still do. Like, you know, I'll be at a party and I'll be the first person that wakes up in the morning and starts cleaning up. I'll help friends build houses. I'll help them clean sheds, but I don't ever ask anyone to come and help. So I just love doing things for people. So I'm like, I need do, to have some time do, off. Do you? Do I? Do you? Love help? Yes. Yeah. I love helping people. Do you know why? Like what I was getting at is, is it a people pleasing tendency? Like, is it coming from a good place or does it come from a, uh, it makes me feel wanna... good when I help someone. Okay. So it's, okay. yeah, it's, it's not a, um, uh, yeah, it, I, I get joy out of helping people. And when someone tries to do something nice for me, it makes me feel uncomfortable, mm. but I, I really enjoy helping people. Um, so I was like, I need to take some time off for myself. So, you know, i dove into you know i read some books and i used to go to mulaney and sit in a hammock and you know in front of a waterfall and um you know try and Stare just at your belly button yeah pretty much just enjoy just just try and get back and obviously still living in brisbane and fighting i was really fit and um a lot fitter than i am now so tinder was a thing so i had like my roommate would say it was a revolving door um <laughs> And through through that, you know, on, on Facebook and, and I saw Jazzy popped up as a friend and I was like, she's hot. Like my initial, I looked at her and was like, wow, she's really attractive. Like she'd never go for a guy like me. Like I, I was like, this is, this is a long shot, but you know what? So add friend and we sort of just liked each other's photos and, Instagram and Snapchat and I was heading out to drop my kids off out to Chinchilla and I took a video of the countryside heading back in Toowoomba and I think either sent it to her or had it on my story and then Jez commented back and we started commenting backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards a little bit through social media. Um, I had a wolf tattoo, Jezzy had a wolf tattoo um, so we had like a little bit of common ground and then she was coming up for Easter Send, spend some time with her family and I offered to pick her up from the airport and take her to a B&B and have a coffee and, and sort of meet because we've been talking for a couple of months. And then we met and I was like, wow, like 
something changed in something felt different in here and i was like i need to get to know i need to get to know this something felt different in here as in you hadn't felt that way with someone before or about someone before is that what it was yeah ever ever in a million years yeah um and then when we started dating i always i say this a bit every partner i've ever had previously girlfriend wife um i always had this thing in the back of my head the rocking chair effect who's going to be the the lady sitting on the veranda in the rocking chair next to me when i'm 99 years old and every time i was in a relationship i never it wasn't that person it was never that person it was always i would always think to myself i really i wonder what my rocking chair partner is going to be like and when I met her and we started dating, I was like, "This is the this is my rocking chair person." Um, where did you get a, that from? Because I think that is a great. I'm, I'm going to keep that one. But where did you get the rocking I'm, chair person from? No, it was something that I had just. I had. I, I may have got it from somewhere, but it's something that I've just. We've. I've always said. Mm. It, I use it as the rocking chair effect more so in the relationship side of things. But I used to use it a lot with. I do this thing today or a decision that comes up or a, a something that uh, presents itself as an opportunity. If I don't take it when I'm in my rocking chair at 90, am I happy with that decision that I didn't do it or am I not happy? Like, so I always try and use the rocking chair effect in things that I do from, you know, decisions I make. Like a filter. Like a filter. Yeah. Mm. I project myself forward and think, right, I'm 99. I'm in the rocking chair. Am I happy with that? decision that I made or didn't make. And then I, when I, I put it into that analogy with Jez when I met her, cause I'm like, wow, there's the, there's my rocking chair person. And then it changed to a hammock cause our first date yeah. was in a hammock, um, in Noosa and Tea Tree Bay, our first proper date. Hmm. We had so, a talk yeah. about the other day. Yeah. <laughs> it's not PG. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you know, has, has, has that feel to be someone's rocking chair person? Jessie? I know, right? It's really big, like high benchmark there. Yeah, um, cool. We, the, I'd become friends with Matt's flight coach. So I think it was one of those things like I'd popped up because I had connected with someone in his world. Um, and so it was kind of like one path led to another that led to another. So it would bring us here, mm. but you know, it's, it was mutual because like, you know, I had an amazing life in Melbourne, right? Great circle of friends, my little dog, my apartment, and then met this bloke. And everyone was like, yeah, but he lives a very long way away. And I was like, yeah, you know, but we'll just see what happens. And then in a very short window of time from meeting him and having a chat and then coming up and being in person and then going home and being like, okay, everybody, I'm moving to Queensland. I'm leaving a great job. I'm leaving this incredible circle of friends and I am packing everything I have into a little box and we are going to Queensland. And they were like, you're insane. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I just got a feeling. I just got a feeling this is just a good life choice and I'm not that person. Like I'm a planet to within an inch of its life kind of person. But then, yeah, I was just like, no, I'm just, I think this is the right life choice and so I'm going to go with it. And I went with it and here we are now. Yeah. So it was a good choice. But, you know, they it sounds so wanky where people go, oh, when you know, you know, when it's right, there's just something the universe had crossed our paths for a reason mm. and, you know. Our souls knew each other mm. it was, deeply. Yeah, you know, it's, it, was, it's, it was so strange. Like, you know, 
it was like meeting an old friend again yeah. that I hadn't seen for a really long time. Um, and so, you know, completely picking my life up and migrating it here didn't feel like a weird or a crazy decision despite everyone around me going, are you insane? Like, have you had a mental break? Um, I was like, no, it's a totally normal thing to do. So, yeah. And here you are. So when we yeah. when we chatted Equitana, you know, our conversation was, I don't think this was the on-camera conversation, maybe it was, but there was a conversation we are talking about. Matt was talking about how viewing the work with the horses differently was a huge, uh, you know, was hugely influential on him. And then I think, Jesse, maybe you mentioned that he'd had a mental coach. And my question mm. to Matt was, so what the horses teach you that a mental coach or a, a, was it a life coach or a mental coach? What was he? Mental coach. Yeah. yeah, mental. Yeah. So Luke Swanson was my, um, that was my roommate that I lived with. So he was my boxing coach and he just started getting into trying to help people sharpen their mental skills. So I was sort of a bit of a guinea pig for him and it worked wonders. Like I was sort of had no, like Jay said, I'd lost that, that drive, that aggression and it, it came back working with with Luke but horses taught me to slow down just to you know don't don't rush it don't try and plan 10 steps ahead work with what you've got at the time um that you're the book that you gave us you know work with the horse that you've got at the moment don't try and project what you want 10 sessions what you want the outcome to be obviously you have that as a a mental um, visualization of what you what your goal is but don't rush it don't try and get this this done this done this done this done to get to here you just sort of work on they taught me just to really take a step back enjoy enjoy the moment i suppose and yeah enjoy life be be present Stop. and and don't be and, and be you know have a focus on process not a process on uh, not a focus on outcome yeah. And I think being so big, you know, like for someone that's normal sized, you don't really have the choice of being out muscling a horse, right? Like I can't go out there and go, well, I will say this is what we're doing and if you choose not to, I will fight you for it because I'm obviously like not that big. Matt could try that and would genuinely be that person that was like, I'll out muscle you if I have to. So for and would genuinely like I've watched Matt try and outmuscle a horse. Like he genuinely that, thought we, he could. We call sorry. that farm boy strong. You know, that's it, right? Like he, you know. But so for Matt to then swap over and go, okay, I not I'm not even going to come to the table and have a discussion about whether or not I'm stronger than you. We're going to have a really even discussion about mm. what we're going to do today, and you know. And it's changed. It's changed how horses interact with me. Once I changed the the way, when you change the way you look at things, the things that you look at you change. Look at change, yeah. Yeah, it, it it's indescribable how different my interaction is with horses after going down this journey that I'm on now, like chalk and cheese. Um, the big Clydesdale that I have, Bridey, we would we would butt heads you know i had started to break him in before i went down this path um 
and there's a lot of trauma between the two of us that we've worked through since. Um, and now, you know, the other day he was ground tying while I did all his feet. I can walk up, you know, and I don't walk up to him, pat him in the paddock. I don't, previous to this, I would go and walk up to him, catch him, put a saddle on, go for a ride, you know, and, and you know, put him back out, give him a wash and put him back out. I never stop to just give him a pat walk up to him in the paddock and sit with him in the paddock, give him a scratch behind the ear and then walk away. And when I started to do that, it was like he was like, hey, what do you mean you only just want to give me a pat and a scratch? I don't, like he was, you could just feel he was like, I don't understand what's going on here. Um, and our relationship now is, I think, a million times stronger than it was when I was always just like, all right, hold her on, let's go. Hold her on, let's go. Yeah, it's very much that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change because what you'll find is you think that horse responds to you in a certain way and you think that's them. Mm. But then when you start responding to them differently, you find they respond back to you differently. Then you've got to look at, oh, that thing before, that was me. That was a projection of me on them. That wasn't, that wasn't who they are. And, and Ray's and such an expressive horse. Yeah. So, like this particular horse, like looking at all of the ones that we have here, he's one of the most expressive, right? Like he he is very forthcoming in letting you know how he feels about something. Um, so for Matt, for so long watching the two of them together, I, I mean, I was like, mm-hmm, he don't like that very much. Like, and he is telling you, but I'm like, it's not my horse. It's not my, not my, I don't know, there's a saying in there. What is it? Oh, I can't remember. Um, but, yeah. So not my circus, not my monkeys. That's it. Yeah. I was like, you know, I just, I, I know better at this point than to stick my nose where it's not wanted. I was like, you guys, you do your thing. You let me know when you're done. He had big energy. I had big energy and we just used to clash. Yes. But looking at that, it wasn't his big energy. It was my big energy and the way that I was f- focusing it. So, mm. Yeah. Yeah, once I learned to change and channel that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And there's a reason why they put a little bit of Clydesdale and the big brucking bronc horses and he let Matt know about it. That a was for times. certain <laughs> yeah. more than once. More than once um, he let Matt know about but, it. So let's kind of skip ahead to what you guys are doing. So, you know, Matt, you've worked mm. in the mines, you're a you know, you're a welder. And Jez, you've got a background in was it advertising? Marketing, yeah. Marketing, yeah. And so now you're both getting psychotherapy degrees, but you already have one, don't you, Jesse? No, I don't. No. no so don't I've got it. I've got a few degrees, but not not one in this space. What do you, what do, what uh, degrees do you have? I've got a bachelor of communications and a master of marketing. Okay. Okay. Very yeah. good. And how far into this psychotherapy degree are you? And how long does it take? Uh, Matt's yeah. nearly finished his part. Yeah, and, so I've got one trimester left. And I'm doing a bit of extra study on top. So I've got, we both can go for our registration in May this year and then I'll do an extra year on top just to get a slightly higher level of registration. Um, but, yeah, we're pretty close. So when when you get done, Matt, what are you going to be? What's what I'll just be, a, uh, so I'll have a diploma in counselling. Um, that will be the degree that I have with that. And then from there I can go into the equine assisted therapy courses okay. to, yep. to attach that yeah. part of it. I mean, we want to try and make sure that we've 
we're not trying to re- we don't want to reinvent the wheel. It's an it's right. one of those funny things too because it's a it's doing the equine specialization because it's such a unique space. It's not like a traditional university. It's like yes, here it is, um, because it's it's not like there's a huge amount of science. We know it's a thing, but there's no science necessarily validating it for them to be able to put it in traditional institutions. Um, so you could go out tomorrow as a registered counsellor and be an equine assisted therapist. Um, right. But for us, it's really important to work with people who have been doing it for such an incredibly long time to be able to make sure that we're doing justice a to the horse and B to our, our clients. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm loving where you guys are going with this. So, uh, you know, I think the thing about you guys were at Equitana when I did the, the masterclass in the main arena on the Sunday and I said mm. I'd met a lot of people there who were in the equine-assisted therapy space and gave yeah. them a bit of a shout-out. But then I said, does anybody have a horse? And, of course, everybody put their hand up and I said, every single one of you, have done some equine assisted therapy just to just be around them and interact with them. You have to, you know, you have to change a bit of who you are, but you mentioned something earlier, Jesse, that I just love. You talked about, say the sound healing in nature Mm. and you know, the acupuncture in nature. And I, I really think the, the whole healing of the world is about getting back to, being a connection with nature. And I think for the people in the space that I occupy, their connection to nature, maybe their initial connection to nature is horses. You know what I mean? I think, you know, you can't, you can't speed nature up. You can't bend the rules. Nature is nature. And I think that's one of the things that makes being around horses therapy because you can't shortcut the whole thing. I mean, you can, but then you get bucked off and then you end up eventually coming back to understanding the the, the rhythms and the cycles and the, the rules of nature sort of thing. And I think, I think you know, you, you were talking earlier on, Jesse, about um, the science of things and what mm. you see the science doing these days. You're talking about old wives' tales and, think, you know, yeah. old stuff. What it appears the science is doing these days is actually um, proving indigenous wisdom. Yeah, like 100%. Old wisdom, you know, like mm-hmm. we, 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 yeah, I, I think we've made a full circle and we're kind of heading back towards mm. that and the, and the science, now that we have, you know, fMRIs and things like that to where you can actually take brain scans of people when you do certain things and it's almost proving that like indigenous wisdom from all around the world was is where we should be going. Well, you know, it's just I love the arrogance of modern humanity that we think that all of our first peoples across the planet were here for such a profoundly long time thriving and living sustainably and, you know, the earth was in a much better place than it is now, yet somehow we've convinced ourselves they didn't know anything. Oh, of course they didn't know anything. They yeah, they didn't live till 95. Why would they have known it? We all live to 95 now. We must know more. It's like, well, hang on a moment. Maybe there was something going on because the the general health and wellness and overall, you know, um, buoyancy of communities was so high at that point and we've lost all of that. 
what what have we done wrong along the way that we are now so smart that we have science telling us all these wonderful things it's all of a sudden now we're going oh hang on a moment actually maybe our first peoples around the world did know something and now we'll believe it because we have got some science to tell us that it's there like yeah science is finding it. the answers it's hilarious arrogance that we have which you know is a hoot it's it's so classically human but you know it's just of course they bloody knew what was going on because the earth told them and they were listening. Mm. Yeah, science isn't finding the answers. It's just uncovering the truths that are already there. That we chose to not look at because yeah. it wasn't convenient. Yeah, it's not It's not going, oh, I've discovered this and it's true now. It's like it's always been there, the same as every, like everything that will be discovered is there now. Mm. You know, it's not modern day science isn't, isn't reinventing the wheel. Yeah, it's a little bit like... Um Oh, you've probably heard me on the podcast talk about. I went to Florida a few years ago to a three-day ayahuasca ceremony. But the, mm. the you know, in South America, in the Amazon, that's where it started. And in, in the Amazon, there's like a million different plant species in the Amazon. And if you take two of those together and boil them, it makes this thing. And if you ask mm-hmm. the the ayahuasqueros from from Peru or anywhere down there and ask, how did you figure out which two plants to put together, they will say, the plants told us. Mm. Yeah, yep, and that's exactly you know, and, it. And with books like The Secret, I don't know if you've read The Secret Life of Trees or anything like oh, that. that. Like amazing? It, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like oh, we I'm reading an amazing book right now and I can't think of what it's called. I don't want to even go and get it. It's beside my bed, but... Chrissy McDonald, Mark Rashid's wife, recommended it to me, and it's about mm. it's about what how animals think, and it's about how scientists for a long animal behavioural scientists for a long time said you cannot anthropomorphise, you know, mm. and the book's about elephants, wolves, and uh, whales, mm. and the first part is about elephants, and elephants, you know, they grieve, they like they have maybe not every human emotion but they have a lot of them mm. and they they elephants can um they recognize individuals and they can recognize individuals by their the noise they make like a shriek yeah. from an elephant is identifiable and they've done things like so some researchers one time uh had recorded an elephant that later on died and so then they went out in the bush and they played that noise over the loudspeaker and the reaction from the other elephants was such that they never did it again. Wow. Mm. So like, they're like, oh, shit, I can't. Yeah, we stopped up. We didn't have done that. Yeah. I can't do that to them. Again, yeah, yeah. Fa- it's a fascinating book and I can't think what it's called right now. But, mm. um, yeah, this whole, this whole, in, in, and so that's, you know, you guys want to do this equine-assisted therapy, but you basically are, reconnecting people with nature and that in itself is is healing that's where we want to go with it we don't want to just be counselors and therapists that just talk to people because you're not fixing all no one's going to the only person that can fix everything is the, the person yourself you can get the tools to sort that out but we want to try and incorporate like you said like Opening up and talking, and 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 you know having ways to deal with different things, but in a healing environment, 
and a, a roof and four walls in a concrete building isn't a healing environment. For me, it's not a healing environment. You know, it shoes off in the dirt. You know, maybe, you know, it is getting people to get in those in, into a nice bath. You know, you, you get someone that has a lot of chatter and a lot of noise um, and a lot of um, negative self-talk. If they hop in an ice bath and you can you can help them into that process, all that all that's gonna go away. Mm. You know, all you're doing when you're in an ice bath is you're focusing on breath and surviving. Mm. So, but it and is breath, it's been- and breath mostly. You know, you said about taking your shoes off and I was reading something recently. Mm. There is actually something in soil that treats depression, that helps with depression, like getting yes. your hands it's in a, soil. Yeah, it's like a bacteria or a nematode yes. or something yes, like that. That is, nematode, yeah. Yes. And that's it. It's an, another, like, that's it, right? We know. Like, okay, we always joke about farm kids being really healthy and robust because, like, they just grow up, like, covered in dirt and poo. Um, But, you know, they also are regularly really happy-go-lucky, fun, Mm. not weighed down with the burden of stuff because life's a little bit simple. But now we have science just validating it for us by understanding some bacteria. We know that even as people who aren't, um, inclined towards country living or whatever it might be, we seek out going on bushwalks or being in nature or taking picnics or going to the beach. Like as humans, irrespective of what we are um, innately built as, what we define ourselves in our daily lives as being, it's undeniable that we are pulled back to the earth and back to nature to be able to experience it you can't meet i've not met a single person who is like oh no no i don't i don't do nature you know like if they're not if they're not someone that likes going for bushwalks there's someone that likes to go to the beach or go to a creek or all of those things like all of us are innately pulled to it and it's for a reason you know like the earth and nature and all of its creatures we're all connected and we're designed to be near each other and it's when we put up these concrete walls between ourselves and between it that suddenly we get this incongruence and suddenly we get all these issues but you know as people who live on land and as people who feel very compelled to be towards nature and towards animals we kind of take for granted that it's so accessible and it feels so logical for us but I think for a lot of people they have this sense of something's not right and they don't quite know what it is. Um, I think it's being in nature. That's what they need to have that that sense of congruence returned for themselves. Um, and for us it's about creating a space where people can come and, you know, whether it be through therapy, have some support in being able to access nature and then, you know, be supported in a way that lets them help start unpacking some stuff yeah. or repacking it or whatever it might be. But really at the end of the day, we we say it's working with the horses because um, a lot of it is and anyone that has a horse or is around a horse knows there's, there's just something that takes place in their presence. Um, and now we have more and more science explaining what that is. But really if a person comes and they're not ready for a conversation that involves a horse, that's okay because that can be a pretty – confronting conversation you know they really 
they show us a lot. They bring a lot They're to a the table. Teacher. They're incredible teachers. And for some people that might be a little too much straight away. So it, it might be just sitting under a tree and just taking a minute to have our shoes off and rub our toes in the dirt. Or it might be just a casual walk around with a buffalo or something. Um, but eventually, you know, that will lead to some conversations with a horse. But at the end of the day, it all starts with just let's just take a moment and be with nature and see what we're ready for together and go from there. Yeah, I think we're supposed to be part of nature, not separate from it. And that book I was mm. talking about, reading it last night, she was saying something about she was warned by scientists, you know, don't try to say that a, a, an animal's nervous system is the same as ours. Mm. You know, don't, don't say that, you know, there's a lot about anthropomorphizing, you know, all the scientists say you shouldn't anthropomorphize, but there was a line that was something like, you know, don't say that animal nervous system is the same as ours. Is, 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 don't say that animal nervous system is a human one. And, she's, and then she says, and I looked at them and I said, but isn't the human nervous system an animal one? Mm. That's it. The human, we are animals. We are yeah. animals and we're mammals. Mm. Like, we're mammals and we're animals. Yeah, we're animals and and we're and we're mammals and yeah, and we we've kind of got this separation thing going on that we're different from them and and so we st I think we we've stopped people have stopped learning from them. There's so much wisdom mm. we get from animals being around animals. Um, we in, have delusions of grandeur. Yes, we do. And that's what this, yeah. this book that I'm reading is is a lot uh, is a lot about. So yeah, I think I think that the you know the the horses is a way of getting us back to to nature. And, and I do think these days that the horses have kind of there's the they're this like this all knowing being who just are here. And if you want to be a Neanderthal, they'll put up with that. You mm. might have to get a few dents and bruises along the way but they'll 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 be that if you want yeah. them to be and and the further down this rabbit hole you go they show up as whatever you allow them to yeah. show up as and it's yeah they saw us coming you know like <laughs> my granny when i was young used to say to us a big change is coming a big change is coming and i think you will be here to see it and, you know, we, she was crazy granny. No one ever really listened. Uh, and the more time we spend around people in this space and the more time we spend around the horses, the more it feels like they saw the end of the book and we're only up mm. to the third chapter and they're just like, it's all right, guys. We know where this goes and we are here with you, but wait till you get to chapter seven. Right. The, you know, there's a, a show on Netflix right now uh, by a fellow named Graham Hancock called, I think it's called yeah, Ancient Civilization. Up. Isn't that amazing? Apocalypse. Mm. Ancient Apocalypse. And, you know, the Mayans talked about this 12,000 yeah. years and lots of people talked about this 12,000 years and this 12,000 years is, is coming up. And I was talking to a podcast, previous podcast guest today about the podcast Summit, which was mind-boggling. And he wasn't there because he was from the, he'll be at the next summit. Um, and he was saying that he thinks the thing will happen in our lifetime. He said it's just mm. so much change in human consciousness that this thing is coming and he says i think it's coming in our lifetime yeah well i mean afra knew shit that none of us knew um so yeah i think i think maybe she was right maybe she wasn't so crazy after all maybe she wasn't crazy granny okay mm. why don't we get to some of these questions you guys have chosen yes. as time is getting away with us here 
And I'm probably going to, you guys chose separate uh, separate questions. I mean, you chose questions separately, but some of the questions are the same. So I'll let's go through the ones that are the same first, and I'll go back through the ones that aren't. Uh, so the first question you both asked is if you could spread a message throughout the world, one that people would listen to, what would that message say? Or your favourite quote. Or you can give us both. Uh, so my message, after sort of being kinder to myself, is just to be kind. Try and look at the bright side of life and just our house rule here is act first with kindness. So that would be my message, is whatever happens, always try and find the kindness in anything. And if you can't find the kindness in something, then don't dwell or focus on it. Mm. We answered these separately and then we were like, we should just workshop our answers and then we discovered <laughs> that our answers were the same. Um, so... <laughs> But yeah, you, mine's, you've added yours. mine's very similar. So our house rule here um, for our family is um, uh, it's got three parts, but the very first part is act first with kindness. So if you're doing anything or doing anything in the family, whatever it might be, if you're not sure, just ask yourself, is this the kind decision? And if it's not, reevaluate the decision. So m- my things, um, if I could get the whole world to do anything, it would be be kind and be curious because I don't think that there's anything we can't fix with kindness and curiosity. And, you know, it really just, it, it's okay if you don't, you don't agree, but if you're curious about why that person feels that way and you're kind in how you approach it, then that's okay. You'll get there. Like you don't have to change your mind, but you're curious. You want to learn about it and it will open your mind to another way. So yeah, it's be kind and be curious. You know, this whole podcast is about curiosity and here, you know, probably in the last six months, maybe in the last 12 months, but I've heard people saying, oh yeah, Warwick, he's such a great interviewer. And I thought, what? I'm not even an interviewer. I'm just having a conversation and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'd, I'd when I the first time I read someone say they thought I was a good interviewer, I thought I've never even thought about being an interviewer. You know, yeah. I don't plan for it or anything. The only thing that's planned is you guys send me these questions and I have them written down here in front of me so I can ask you. But um, yeah, curiosity. So you guys met my son Tyler at Equitana. Yeah, he's a bit of an old soul, and he came home. You know, he lives in Hawaii, but last year, the year before, he was home. And he, he probably any time he's home, he gives Rob and I a good stern talking to. <laughs> um, you know, our, our 23 or 24 or 25-year-old son, depending on which age, he's 25 now. But probably when he was 23, he said, he sat us down one night and he's like, I've got to have a talk to you too. He said, you're doing great things out there in the world, but you need to be more kind to each other. Hmm. You're doing great with your interactions with others, but you need to be more kind to each other. And, you know, when you're married, been married for 28 years, there's, you know, there's a buildup of little, little shit there that, yeah. that causes you to not be kind. But that's a great saying, you know, first be kind. Uh, the next question that you both asked, you both chose together, or separately but together, the same question was, what have you changed in the past five years that has helped shape who you have become? Being open to a different way of thinking for me. So really 
being open and vulnerable to learning a whole new way of doing things, which has then led me to where I am now. Mm. So it was about five years ago that we met um, and I think some of the hippie chick started to rub off pretty quick <laughs> on me, which then let me really, um, really start to enjoy my own company, I suppose, and then learn the, the, the different things that we've mm. Sort of gone down and journeyed on together. Mm. Mm. And mine's really probably just um, coming back to nature and really letting myself be here and listening to my inner monologue more as opposed to not, you know, I, I, I had a wonderful life in Melbourne. It was great that by all appearances and perceptions, I was as happy as they came. But I had an incongruence. There was something not quite right, which I just kind of didn't listen to. Or I scratched that itch by bushwalking and going to the beach or going on, you know, paying trail riding companies to be able to go out for a, for a strap. Um, but by listening to my inner monologue and got, going, hey, this isn't quite right, and then coming back and going, no, this feels right, has meant that my life has been able to, you know, it's like I was trying to describe it to Matt. It's like, you know, there was a flower and it was a perfectly functional little flower. Like it was, you know, in advance, it was doing great. But it's like, you know, now it's like a big flower. It's, it's like, it's, you know, right. it's come from little to big. Anyway. <laughs> you know, it was interesting, Matt, you said the thing that you've changed in the last five years is, is changing the way you look at things. And I think that first, the first one's the most important one. You know, when you, when you've looked at life a certain way for quite a long time and then you, you look at things a bit different and things are different, then it's like, well, what else? What other, you know, like what else could I look at that I didn't look at before that might be, you know, it's, it's that, it's taking that first step. Are, yeah, yeah, taking that first step without even knowing you're taking that step kind of thing. You know, like you don't, most people don't elect to take that step. It, it kind of happens to you and it shows you that things are possible. And then you start to consciously take steps after that. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, you both ask the question, what quality do you admire in a person? Yeah, back to what my message would be to the world. People that are genuinely happy, loving and kind would be my, you know, when you're around those people, the frequency is different. You can really yeah. feel the, the genuineness of someone that's completely happy with themselves, that they exert love and kindness. Mm. It is a different yeah. vibe, isn't it? It's, it's people who are kind and who are curious but who aren't afraid to be who they are. They have, a know, have a disagreement. You, can, you, know, you have yeah. different views and different opinions and you don't try and change the other person's idea on something. You, you, you try and understand it and then they try and understand your view of it and it may open you up to go, that's a, that's a complete, I haven't even looked at it that way, but you're not trying to. You're not trying to be right. And mm. I feel like to, today's society is just you're wrong and I'm right and you need to just listen to how I'm doing it. Mm. So there's nothing better than when you meet a person who is kind and nice to be around. Like, you know, they, they feel good. They feel like a warm hug when you're near them. Um, and they're curious about you and your story, but they have their own. And if it doesn't line up, they will share theirs with you. 
and then you get the opportunity. It's selfish and I'm okay with it because then I get the opportunity to go, tell me more about that. That's so interesting. I don't I hadn't really thought about it. Maybe it doesn't totally align, but I'm really curious to know more about it. It's such a good feeling to be able to have those conversations. You know, it was interesting, Matt, when you said, you know, what quality, I said, what quality do you mind another person? You started talking about the quality of another person, but then you started saying you don't have to be right. And you weren't talking about mm. them. You were talking about you. And it's almost like the quality you admire in other people is the quality you admire in you. You know what I mean? You started, you started talking about them. Your, your answer was the them. And then the, then the answer turned into you. But I, this comes back to that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. You can meet somebody who's got their walls up. And when you are open and kind to them, it's almost like an invitation to join you. Mm. And if they were on the fence, like, mm. oh, I might have to hold back from this person and you are open and kind to them, it's like you pull that fence down and they can they can step into that that space. Mm. Not maybe not everybody does it, but you know what I mean? Like if someone's yeah, on the, the fence. The invitation's you, there. Yeah, mm. you come across that way. Like, you know, vulnerability, the first, you know, the first you know, I've talked about a lot on the podcast and especially influenced by Brene Brown, but you always think if I share those shameful things about me, I'll be judged. And it's mm. never that way. It's always, yes, me too. And now you've mm -hmm. got an ally. Now you've got a friend. And you've also, you've also shared your vulnerability when they share their, and they share their vulnerability back. And then they, it plants a seed in their head like, well, maybe I could do that to someone else. And they go out and mm -hmm. share that. So, you I know, forward. I do think that, that, quality you admire in other people is probably a quality you admire in yourself but i think when you can do that first the door is open for for other people too yeah it becomes a safe space yes uh that's that is the questions you both chose together now i'm gonna go with the individual ones and matt i'm interested in this what book do you recommend most not necessarily your favorite book, but the one that you tell other people about the most. It is the book of Ho'oponopono. <laughs> okay. It was from your podcast with Linda Tellington-Jones. Yes. Um, and I downloaded it that day. I think I listened to it in one hit. And I have given that book to so many people and they have all come back and said it has changed their life. And then they have given it to people which has changed their lives. So that is a, uh, a gift that I will always, always be grateful from getting from your platform is listening to that podcast and downloading that book because it has had a more profound change on my life than anything. And I've done you know, an ayahuasca journey and plant medicines and stuff, but that book, if you haven't read it yet, Download it or buy it and read it because it will change your life. You know, this question is there. What book do you recommend most so that listeners can kind of get like, oh, I should listen to that one. You know what I mean? You just changed my life because I have it on a list from because of talking to Linda Tenney Jones, but I haven't, I haven't. Oh, I haven't you have to. It and listen to it yet. And so now I'm like, okay, that's, that's my yeah. running. I've been uh, listening to podcasts a lot when I run. I'm like, oh no, okay, I'm going to, I've got to listen to that one. 
Yeah. yeah that's the book. Yeah, it's really okay. good. Okay. So, Jesse, what did you want to be as a child? <laughs> I was going to <laughs> I was going to be a vet and an actress um, at the same time. Uh, and I very quickly discovered I'm not from the kind of family that push you to do stuff. Um, and so when I hit high school, I discovered sex, drugs and rock and roll hard uh, and didn't do any of the things. I just did sex, drugs and rock and roll. And so when I came to push and shove of all the things that required ambition or drive, um, I didn't do those. And so uh, the lesson I learned there was don't do sex, drugs and rock and roll, kids. <laughs> good, good, good advice. Good advice. Um, so let's, let's define drugs. <laughs> okay. Drugs that don't just, open the top. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, you're Matt, right. Matt just mentioned plant medicine. I'm going to go I don't on. consider plant medicine a drug. Okay, very good because it's not. So, it, yeah. correct. Uh, synthetically synthesized pharmaceuticals. Um, mm. It's probably a better term. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, it doesn't have the same ring to it. Doesn't have the same ring to it. Having the same ring to it. Yeah. No, it doesn't have the same ring to it. And as my former podcast guest Will Sue told me, and it's not his saying, but but plant medicine are non-specific amplifiers of the unconscious. Mm. It's Such already nice there. It's already there. It just, it's a non-specific amplifier of what's in your unconscious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Matt, what do you feel your true purpose is in the world? Helping disadvantaged youth. That's what I want to try and focus on the most with our um, Wolfpack Clinic is getting kids that are from a background and um, youth justice, basically trying to mentor and help and talk to and and get kids these days that are just getting looked over um back to having finding what you know they like about themselves so yeah just my i feel very strongly about trying to help youth um and whether or not i can you know change their environment probably not because you know they're kids and they've got an environment that they're they they're in but if i can give them some tools so that when they can start to create their own environment and bring up their kids they can hopefully look back and and use some of the things and some of the you know the the things that we talk about to create a better environment for their kids if that makes sense so not i want to help kids i may not be able to change exactly everything you know that they're having trouble with but i really want to try and give them tools to be able to, you know, help them when they're adults. You know, instead of just standing at the base of a waterfall and plucking people out, I want to go to the top of the waterfall and give them, you know, give them tools and and ways to be able to either help them learn to swim or just don't jump off the waterfall in the first place. And then, you know, if you're doing that, like you mentioned, you're you're mentioning, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of being the, the, the stopgap in the in like generational trauma like if you can help them you can help their kids mm. and you can help their kids kids and their kids 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 so mm. it says what do you feel like your true purpose is in the world that's what you feel your true purpose is how long have you felt that way uh 
but just before COVID, um, I put my hand up and I had, I, it's weird, through my whole adult life, I've always said to myself, I just, I don't like people. I don't like people. And it wasn't that I didn't like people. I didn't like myself at the time. And then when I realized that, I was like, oh, I, I, I want to help people. And then from, I want to help people. I do want to help all people. You don't have to be a child. I want to help everyone. Um, but I put my hand up for the Raise Foundation, which is a mentoring program where they take people from everyday life and they put them into high schools with kids that are just go on the wayside. They don't go to class. They don't, they're not engaged in school. And I wasn't like, I, I so I signed up to the Raise. I did all their courses online, did all the interviews um, and got put in Woodcrest High, which is a pretty rough and tumble high school um, and got a, um, a young young man, Ricky, to mentor. And there was a booklet to go through and he wasn't the kind of kid that would go through a book. And we just talked. I hadn't started my um, counselling degree yet. So this was just me talking to him as a guy that left school at 14. Um, I was the only bloke in the whole program. There was, you know, all the kids and um, other uh, female mentors. And yeah, got paired up with Ricky and we just, I was just real with him. Just talked to him like I, I didn't talk to him as a kid or as a kid that had, you know, was a troubled kid. I just talked to him as a kid and we just hung out and, you know, played basketball and went for walks and we didn't sit down and go through paperwork and bookwork. So yeah, doing that raise foundation and I was like this, it felt not selfish, but it felt good. Like I felt like there was, like this is it. This is what I want to try and achieve. And then we obviously, you know, went through the process mm. of going down and how can we, how can I do this more? How can I make a not a living, but how can I do this on a larger scale? Right. Yeah. So. You know, in shadow work, some of the like the like the parts work with therapists and stuff, they will have you go back and talk to your younger self. Um do you feel doing this like you are you, you know there's a there's a meme i saw floating around here a while ago and it said be the person your younger self needed do mm. you feel like you are being the person to those young people that you felt you didn't have yeah yeah i never really looked at it like that but definitely Having a, having a constant, I suppose, having a, a constant, someone constantly there that's you know can give guidance and you can talk to, I suppose. And I had a lot of people in my life at a lot of different stages that taught me a lot of things, but I didn't have a constant. Mm. Yeah, it just occurred to me that, you know, like it's only been since COVID that you've known what your purpose in life is and, and I was thinking, well, that's kind of, recent i was just trying to figure out where it where mm. it came from and it just just occurred to me that, like i said you know with a lot of parts work and shadow sort of work that you they say you know you, you go back and you have conversations with your younger self and you help your younger self through problems that you didn't have someone to help you through at the time so i just want to know if you thought that was related uh back to you jesse what is your relationship like with fear hmm fear's a really funny one um i I am a bit of a scaredy cat and so my narrative was often dominated by fear. Um, you know, 
I would make decisions based out of an anxious response about what could happen. I would over plan and analyze and very fear-based response system. Um, and, you know, the closer I get to 40 and the further I get away from 30, the more I'm able to really pragmatically have a conversation with fear and say, hey, are you here to serve me today or are you here in a way that's not serving me um, and what are we going to do about it? Uh, it also helps to be married to a person that seems to be missing the part of the brain that's attached to fear um, and uh, has forced me to either get on with it and get shit done or just not be able to participate, which I think sometimes we have to be able to like hormetic stressor. He is my hormetic stressor. Um, some people have cold baths and other people just get married to this guy. Um, but, you know, now as I get older, I'm able to really kind of have a, I think fear is obviously so important. It's, it keeps us safe and does all these wonderful things for us, but it also when it's allowed to run without a leash on it, it can very quickly control us. Um, and learning to be able to have a conversation with it as if it was a third entity outside of myself and say, hey, what are we doing? Are you here because I need to know something is dangerous and I'm potentially not making a great decision? Or are you here because I'm not trusting myself? Or are you here because of something else? Um, at which point I need you to leave and we're going to go ahead and do this other thing. So I think it's really changed as I've gotten older and my sense of self has gotten higher. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't always great. It wasn't always a great relationship, but it's definitely gotten better. I know Matt didn't choose this, but, Matt, what's your relationship like with fear? <laughs> I believe fear is there as a self-preservation mechanism, but I don't listen to it. <laughs> Where does I listen that to come it? from? I don't know. Like, because, I, I, because, you know, most most people, just like Jesse just kind of said, you know, you have this relationship with fear that really holds you back from a lot of things. And I'm just wondering if you could share how to <laughs> uh, um, view things that way. I really don't know where it comes from. I listen to it. Like I, I accept the fact that the fear is something. I'll be doing things. Like I work on a roof. A lot of the stuff I do now is work on a roof. And I could be four and a half, five stories up and walking on the last tile, you know, on a roof with, with zero. And it's there. It's, it's hard to explain. It, it lets me know that there's a possibility that if you do, if you take a wrong step, you will, worst case scenario, you die. But I, I let it be a voice but I don't let it take the reins at any point. It's always there in the back seat going, hey, now I do a lot of spearfishing. Um, and when I was single and I couldn't get people to come spearfish, I would do, don't do this out there. Anyone in spearfishing, don't spearfish on your own. Um, but I would every weekend go spearfishing in areas where it probably wasn't the great place to go, but I never had it. I never, I, it was there in the back of my mind and I would always be hyper aware of the situation I was in, but I never let fear tell me what I can do. It was always just a voice in the background. I'd love to see a brain scan of your amygdala. I wonder if you have like an Alex Honnell amygdala. Have you ever seen uh, mm. Free Solo, the movie Free Solo? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yep. You know, his amygdala is, is um, quite small. Mm. But yeah, I'm not sure where it comes from. I listen, I, it's there. There's a voice. There's definitely a, like that, that third person there, but it's a, mm -hmm. so it's a whisper. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to be able to tell that dude to shut up at times, I'll tell you what. 
Uh, so, Matt, what's the luckiest thing that ever happened to you? Yeah, I, I, was, <laughs> I just looked down and like, so for you guys at home, yeah. he just pointed to Jesse. And as I yeah, read it, I thought, I know what his answer is going to be. Yeah, no, meeting, meeting Jesse is the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me. That ultimately is what set me on the path that I am now. And I will forever be grateful for that. Hmm. I haven't made it easy for him, but you no, know, I don't like easy. he rose to the occasion. <laughs> I think he was—he would think he was up for the challenge. And uh, one last question for you, Jesse: Do you have a favourite horse? Yeah, <laughs> I was telling Matt I was going to answer this and possibly have a nervous breakdown in the middle of the conversation. Um, so this is I the place had, to do it. Yeah, um, when I was pregnant, I think is when we got cat. Um, you know, we've just we've had this really interesting journey with horses together that they've just kind of come to us typically in really obscure situations, like things around them have been a bit odd. Um, and I was pregnant, so obviously I was like quite heavily pregnant at the time, so I wasn't riding. Um, and two, uh, there was a, a Frisian stud uh, not far from us that was closing down. And I don't know what Frisian horses go for in America, but in Australia they're quite high value horses. Yeah, pretty expensive, yeah. Yeah. And so there was a bunch of them being sold off um, and either straight Frisians and Frisian warm bloods. Uh, so I reached out and they were like, yeah, you can come up and see what there is. And I kind of told them potentially what I might be looking for. And the horse that I went up to see had been sold like the day before I got there. Something could happen, the wires had crossed. And she's like, but there's a paddock over the road. Um, with a couple of brood mares and they're just out there. We just bush them, but you're welcome to go over and have a look. And so I went over and this big, beautiful black mare came over. Um, and, you know, you just, I was like, this horse is coming home with me. There is just something going on and I, I have to, you have to come home with me. Um, so I took her and her last foal home with me um, and we didn't pay very much for them, um, which, you know, I was like, well, this is all happening. This is happening for a reason. So I got her home and her name was Katia and she was just, there was something really obscure going on with her. Um, and, you know, like she didn't like to be groomed, but it wasn't, uh, I don't like it. It was like this confusion about what was taking place. Um, and she hadn't had her feet done. So, you know, we had to teach her how to pick up her feet and she was very sensitive around her back legs and all of this kind of stuff was going on and we weren't really sure what was happening. And But she was just like, I, the lessons she taught me from the moment she came home were just incredible. They, she was the life-changing horse. And I had an animal communicator come out to talk to her because I was like, I just can't connect the dots. There's something that I need to know and she's trying to tell me, but I can't quite figure it out. Um, <laughs> and so she told me all of her stories and they were really incredible and incredibly heartbreaking. And she'd had a really tough life as a broodmare and people hadn't done good things to her. But I just, you know, she came at a point where um, by the time I had the animal communicator, I had a new baby. And so I was like, wow, like I feel this so deeply. So the universe was like, these conversations will happen at this time. And that's that. Um, and then once I knew, we just, the journey together after that, I was like, now I get it. Like I'm here with you. We are on this. And we transformed, right? Like after that, it was just a totally different dynamic because she had been able to tell me what I needed to know. Um, 
And then she died, which was really heartbreaking. She had a really horrible accident and we lost her. And it's funny, I'm as I have a breakdown, I'm not a hyper-emotional person. I think before I got a child I could count on one hand the number of times I'd cried um, and they were always during like really significant moments. I wasn't just a person to cry over nothing. But, you know, after all the lessons we learned together, and the one really big one was that, you know, as we go through life, we'll meet horses and we will meet people and they're not all there for us forever. They're there because we need to learn something. They need to help, as Matt would say, our soul needs to learn a lesson in that moment and then they need to deliver something to us for their soul to be ready to go into its next place. I needed to learn a lesson. She needed to be able to complete her journey. And then when we got there, it was like it was gone, which I was like, this is so unfair. This is not fair at all. But, you know, I am so profoundly grateful that our paths crossed because I was able to learn so much. And through learning from her, I'm able to do more with Matt and all of those things. So, And we you know, still have her fall. And we do. We have her last fall and she's incredible. Yeah. But, yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, wow, this is really shit, but, oh, my God, I'm so profoundly grateful to have had that experience and have met her and have her journey be able to cross with mine. Um, and, yeah. for her, and for her, the end of her journey to be to with be us. To be with us. I think that mm. was really important yeah. for her as well, for her to be able to complete her time in an environment where, you know, she had a voice, like she'd been just – a commodity that produced expensive babies. And she'd had some really horrible things happen to her on that journey that she really needed to do some healing around. Um, and I think I was the person to help her do that healing. And then, you know, she was able to do that and we had a really beautiful period of time together. And then, you know, that was that time done and the universe was like, that journey ends now and it's time for another one to start. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, it's a tough lesson for anyone to ever learn um, and sometimes horses are the ones to teach it to us. But, yeah, she was pretty bloody special. Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, for you guys at home, you you missed the best part. You know, you were – Jesse, you were saying that this – when you had the animal communicated to her and, and she told you about her past and, you know, you kind of got you got her and understood her where she was coming from there were two times during that little dialogue right there when you were having a really hard time and Matt reached over and put his arm around you mm -hmm. and then when he felt like you were good enough to do it on your own, he pulled his arm back again. But then as the story went on, it's like, oh, no, you needed some support and he reached over <laughs> and put his arm around you. Only for long enough to help you through that part. Mm. And then when you were good on your own, he drew back and now you guys are sitting just side by side, shoulder to shoulder sort of thing. It was so it was so cool to to watch that because it wasn't like he just reached over and held you the whole time. He was really reading when you needed support and when you could stand on your own two feet. And it was mm. it was a pleasure to watch. Mm. You're nice. a good egg. <laughs> he's your rocking chair person he is yeah, she is <laughs> he is well thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast it's been great chatting with you 
I am very excited to see where you guys, what you guys do in the world and the changes you make. Once you get these um, psychotherapy degrees and really open the doors to the Wolf Ranch um, next year. i got, I got to tell everybody at home, when you guys came to the booth at Equitana, Matt hands me a T-shirt and on the front of it, on the chest on the front of it, it says Wolf Ranch. But on, does it say Wolf Ranch or Wolf Pack? Wolf Pack Ranch. Wolf Pack, Wolf Pack Ranch, sorry. But on the back of it, in big letters, it says, it's not woo-woo, it's true-true. And it was so cool to have this big, burly ex-MMA fighter give me a shirt that says, it's not woo-woo, it's true-true. That's almost as good as, or it's almost, it's on the same level as Tanya Kindersley talking about the super-woo. We've now entered the, the super-woo. So I think I think it's not woo-woo, it's true-true, and the super-woo uh, are two Oh, and 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 the rocking chair person are, are some terms that have, have come from the the podcast that we might live on in a few people's vocabularies. Hmm. Well, that's good. They're, they're good ones. <laughs> they are good ones. So, like I said, thank you guys so much for for joining me and for sharing your story. Um, how do people contact you? No more. About uh, so um, we have a website. Um, which we will give you to put in show notes because I will recite it terribly. Um, uh, we are on Instagram under the Wolfpack Ranch. Um, we both have our own Instagrams. Um, they're sort of generally the best platforms to reach out via. Um, and yeah, what are your what are your what are your individual Instagrams? Uh, your I'm Matt Wolf eighty six. Yeah, and I'm the Wolf Wellness. The Wolf Wellness. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like anyone that's around and wants to come and touch the dirt and wear their comfy pants under a tree, mm. please reach out. Where the You know, uh, people always say the door is open. Come anytime. But, like, really, the, the door is open. If you are in town and you feel like you need to just take a minute to sit under a tree in your comfy pants, then come and sit under the tree because, you know, we all need to do it a little bit more. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for joining me. You guys were awesome. And for you guys at home, thanks for joining us. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks, Warwick. Thanks, Warwick. See you guys. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.